I just posted my, my review of your film, which I thought was absolutely spectacular. Thank you, Dan, for nagging me to go watch it because Jan 6, as I say in the post, I try not to be one of these like culture war warriors who's like constantly dancing on the third rail of American politics, which January 6th definitely is. But, um, your film spurred me to write something about it because I found it so striking, um, for, for a bunch of reasons. But maybe I'll shut up there and just let Jamie, um, and or Dan introduce themselves, um, and, and the film. Yeah, well, well, thank you so much. Um, it's Jamie here. Yeah, thanks, thanks for having us on and taking interest. It does feel uh, slightly surreal being a year on and, and just watching, obviously, the press has been writing about that day uh, a lot the last couple of days. Um, yeah, I was, I was the director on the ground out in, out in the US uh, making the film. Um, we were making it, cutting it back here in London at Amos Pictures um, under the watchful eye and the and, and the and the brilliant guidance of the exec producer dan reed yeah so uh, my name's dan reed um i've known antonio for a little while now and uh and and value the uh value his company he's uh he's uh, he's a cool guy we sometimes go for a walk on the beach in san francisco i i believe that's that i think i can say that without betraying any confidence <laughs> Um, yeah, so I'm, I was the executive producer of the film. I have a you know long, a long history making uh, documentaries. One you may have heard of is Leaving Neverland, which was HBO's biggest documentary to date. Um, and I really wanted uh, to to put to to put together a definitive account of what happened on January six. And just you know the reason Jamie and I wanted it to be four hours is that we really wanted to this was an event obviously that was you know there was such widely uh differing views and accounts of, of what actually happened and we thought a really good cool thing to do would be look okay so here are the four hours when if you like the 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 the, the intensity of it, of the event was at its peak the most violent whatever we didn't we didn't actually set out with with a huge amount of uh, preconceptions about what happened but but we knew that these were the four hours that were the most videoed and where there was the most action, if you if you want to put it that way. And, and, and so we decided to go to every possible source of footage that we could find. And, you know, that included parlor and like huge data drops that happened shortly after January 6th because people were worried the material would disappear. And, and also um, a bunch of videographers that we'd got to know from uh, from August, the preceding August, who covered the events in Kenosha, Wisconsin, um, and we got to know these guys, and they and they they were able to give us a lot of their rushes, their unpublished material. So so we had this vast trove of amazing video, and that's really the backbone of the production. You know, I mean, that was one of my first questions because. Is that okay? um, yeah, th- sorry, is that okay? yeah, my my. Yes, that is my that is my COVID cat Luna, who's super obnoxious, sleeps all day, except when I'm on a call and suddenly demands attention. Um, she or or maybe she just liked the film, Dan. I'm not sure, but in any case, it, you know, one question I was going to have. One of the amazing things about the film is that, as you said, it's this enormously contested event in the American sort of political and media scape, um, and it's hard to kind of get any sort of overarching narrative that isn't totally co-opted by one side or another. And I think you do a very good job of sketching out the nerve of exactly what happened and how it went down. And one of the amazing things about it is exactly what you just said, right? The, the amount of footage that you use, like 
even key events like you know the Officer Goodman situation or the scene at the uh, in the rotunda or the scene at the Speaker's podium inside the Senate, um, y- you capture it from several angles. It's it's almost it almost seems as if it was filmed as a production because you had several shots or several angles often on the same piece of action. So did you just watch just endless hours of footage and somehow edit it all together into a coherent narrative? How, what, what was that like and how, how long did it take? Yeah, I mean, there's, there's, there's a guy maybe, uh, Milo Riley Smith, who, yeah, he's gone home now. So we're sitting in London, it's like seven in the evening. Um, but Milo, who was the assistant producer, who was Jamie's right-hand man on the production had to literally sit and watch like hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of hours of footage and try and put together like, you know, because you, you don't, you start out not, not knowing what's what and not really understanding what you're watching and not knowing where it is. And then by the end of it, you know, you go, okay, so this is the rotunda, right? Okay. So, and so that must be the rotunda too. And then, okay, this is the moment when the guy pulls out the you know the 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 doobie and he he's the doobie smoker so and there's another angle on the doobie smoker so it was a very pain long and painstaking process of trying to basically synchronize a lot of different video streams is that that that, that actually allowed us to put things into context as well i mean we for example we had i think four angles on the ashley babbitt shooting um and then there's other which really enable us to see how the crowd reacted what the police officer was doing um you know even the material we didn't use fed into how we put the film together but also just on the actual run of events we knew what was happening elsewhere in the building so like dan said we were really wanted to be where the most intense moments on that kind of front line of, of what was happening um but also be very aware of what was happening in other places because that's been up very much up for debate you know some people saying that police officers were lifting and pulling back barricades you know they did but we understand the context is that that was at a point where elsewhere in the complex they'd been overwhelmed so there had been an order put out that drop back into the building we have we have to protect the inside of the building now so we've seen people theorize about what was happening. So we, we really, with this video, needed to get to the bottom of it. Right. And so just as a little context there, because you know, most listeners probably haven't uh, watched the documentary yet. By the way, pull request subscribers, there's a, you can watch it on HBO or there's a, there's a link inside the pull request piece to actually go watch it, which uh, Dan and Jamie very, very generously offered. But just to touch on a few of the, the people you're talking about, the doobie smoker, who I found very compelling in a weird pathological way, this guy, Nick <laughs> Alviar, um, who I, I can see why you chose him because he's, he's like a stoner dude. He's like the dude from the Big Lebowski, right? Somehow in the middle of this Capitol riot who gets to the rotunda and like literally cracks out a spliff and starts like sitting there and toking up, staring at this, not quite, uh, you know, kind of amazed at the fact that they somehow pulled it off. And then the other, the other example you cited is a lot more tragic, that of Ashley Bobbitt, who was the one person that was actually shot uh, while trying to vault through a door to get into, into the house chamber, which highlights, I think, part of what makes the film so compelling is that it's this bizarre juxtaposition of like actually vicious, violent hand-to-hand combat. And then some of the most absurd and carnivalesque scenes you can imagine. I mean, at the same time that you have someone, you know, literally getting shot and basically dying on screen, you have the, the crazy shaming guy who gets up to the, to the podium of the vice president in the Senate and kind of politely gets, get asked, gets asked to get down by one of the cops, almost like a museum, a museum guard would ask someone to like not touch a piece of art or something. It's just, it's this bizarre combination of just unfettered violence. And then, 
kind of a politeness about it. And I want to get into that um, in a second, but just to highlight another thing you mentioned, right, which is the dramatic tension of, of the documentary in the first half hour is just almost unbearable because you have these events going on outside and you can see the, the, you know, the tension mounting as the, the protesters, rioters, whatever, break through police wall after police wall after police wall. And as you said, a lot of the police seem to basically retire and give up rather than shooting on the crowd. And at the same time, inside the chambers, you have legislators going through their little procedural book, not understanding that there's this mob about to hit them, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and anyhow, I, I don't know if that was intentional or not. But well, to me, you that, know. That, you know, we've, we've, we've um, uh, as a company, we've done um, a, a, a bunch of films that that start with putting together a very detailed timeline of, of, a, of a dramatic event. And what you often find when you assemble a timeline like that is, the drama uh, emerges when you understand that like this, this bunch of people here were completely oblivious to what was happening somewhere else at exactly the same time. And I thought, you know, that, that kind of was really absent in the, in the news coverage of, of January 6th. And you realize that, you know, the, the, particularly in the house of representatives, that people were just going about their business, you know, really until the very last second, like way after the, the mob had entered um, had entered the building, and to me that was that was astonishing, and I think a lot of people found that kind of hard to believe. Just, just to add on to that, actually, you pick up on a very good point about the um, the the kind of the, the, those moments of absurdity followed by kind of moments of horror, and we found that that was that that was kind of emblematic in the day. You know, there's Leia Han, a, a, a staffer for Nancy Pelosi, while she's cowering and crying and thinking she's going to be, she says herself, raped or killed. She thinks she might be. Inside a inside a room outside, you've got people the doobie smoker there having a great time, and it's kind of that. That was also the experience of some of the police officers who thought they were going to die, but they were looking up at mobs who were dressed as kind of almost fancy dressed clowns with flags and masks, <laughs> and it, it was an absurd carnivalesque horror of a day. Mm. And, and yeah, so getting the tone right, um, getting the tone right, and you know, I, I, I guess a lot of these rioters protesters, whatever you want to call them, had, had not been really heard from uh, on sort of, if you like, quote unquote, kind of serious mainstream media. So, you know, as a, as a, what we like to think of as a really serious, you know, HBO documentary with, with, you know, a lot of sort of good journalistic practice and integrity and all that, you know, we, we, um, I, I think we took pride in, in, in giving a voice to some of these people because, uh, the whole point is to understand where people are coming from. It's not, you know, we, we got, kind of got shouted at in the press uh, afterwards, some of the Hollywood, Hollywoody, uh, the, the, the trade press was like, why did you give a platform to these people? They're obnoxious and all that. And, and, and I, I think, you know, my, our thinking is diametrically opposite, which is these are the very people you need to hear from if you want to understand this event. That, was, that, that, that was the mission from the start with the, with, when Dan and I were speaking was we wanted we were watching this unfold and we were like, what the hell is going through these people's minds? You know, that was really what yeah. we wanted to get the box. The headline was, and we always like, our sort of catchphrase was, what the expletive were they thinking? <laughs> what were they thinking? That was the, you know, the, the, our mantra as we, as we tried to put together this film. Yeah, no, I mean that, <laughs> right. No, and it's very clear from the interviews you did, you know, in some sense they incriminate themselves because you sort of listen like the Nick Alviar guy who comes off as this, like the dude from the Big Lebowski prefaces his whole comment, you know, talking some QAnon rubbish about 800,000 kids killed every year or something. Like you can tell the guy's head <laughs> is in some la-la land, right? And 
and, and then like the cowboys for Trump dude, who's like a minister up there, <laughs> who's obviously kind of also in La La Land about what's what's really going on. I mean, it, it, I think the objection to you're actually giving these people a, a platform probably operates at two levels, right? The, the first order level is like, well, you know, the dumb level of like, oh, you shouldn't talk to people who are bad, right? But then the other level, I think, is that potentially, right, is that in fact, by giving them a platform, you kind of expose them for the clowns they are, right? Because part of this narrative, and I get into this in my piece a little bit, is how both sides, just to flatten everything to a binary opposition, right, are kind of treating this like some deep Weimar Reichstag moment, when in fact, while there was real violence in, you know, to it, it, it was almost clownish in its sort of origins, at least, right? And it's difficult to, you know, to look at these people like, the beginnings of some new militant army when they seem so incredibly deluded and kind of just clownish in general. Um, I, I, I don't know if, if that resonates at all, or if you, you know, you think that's part yeah. of it or that was part, part of the intent. And that, that's kind of a weird, I, I, I think, you know, we read about history uh, and you sort of look back at like 1917 or 1905 or whatever, or, the, or you know, 1933 and and you think okay this this at the time you know because the consequences were so serious for the world at the time it must all have appeared incredibly serious but i think there is a kind of weird absurdity you know that 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 dangerous people as we've often been reminded by by uh, i've often been reminded by by counterterrorism cops that i've spoken to like you know really dangerous people can be ridiculous clowns yeah. and um and that isn't to say that all clowns are dangerous far from it i don't think you know i don't think any of the people that you interviewed were, were dangerous or but probably the majority of the crowd that you know kind of bumbled into um into the capital were not inherently dangerous people but as one of the congressmen says it's that you know that the, the weapon is the mob it's when everyone gets together and when you get even when you get you know ten thousand clowns together they're still they're still pretty dangerous as a as a mass you know um, and I think that's that that's an, it gives you an interesting insight into kind of history because because I think you know there, there are probably turning points in history where if you were there you'd probably think oh that that you know that guy is a complete clown like, like how how can it, you know how can anyone take him seriously but and yet you know the right clown at the right time as perhaps we've seen from American politics is is you know is can have a devastating effect a really important effect. Yeah, I mean my. My my take on it, like the meta level, just to get, I guess, political for a moment and, and I guess, pause the, the cinematic analysis a little bit. You know, I titled the piece about it, American Innocence. One of the things that's, that struck me about it is that I don't know if innocence is the right word. It's more naivete, right? But what you see in your film is like a culture that's really kind of not used to real domestic hardball politics, kind of mm -hmm. trying it out for the first time, almost like an amateur would get on a skateboard and kind of wipe out and kind of say, well, I don't know, do I want to do this, right? Because, um, you know, I, I cite counterexamples, you know, in my piece, you know, for example, you know, I, I'm a Spanish citizen, right? And 
1981, <laughs> there was an assault on the Spanish capital. And guess what? When the civil guard got to the podium, they didn't sit back and take a selfie. <laughs> right? He took out a pistol, fired three shots in the air and tried to actually take over the government. Right. Yeah, and so yeah. it's. Um, and if you look at even right now, Kazakhstan is actually undergoing a much more violent version and a much more sort of intentional version of what we saw on January 6th in the U.S. So it's, it's interesting to me to see Americans kind of engaging in the sort of domestic political insanity that is routine in much of the world, right? But you just you don't see in the United States and Americans haven't seen in a very long time, if ever. And it's just, it's intriguing how both sides are kind of settling into their roles. And you can't tell if it's a LARP, if it's just like a role play, like if it's just a dress up game and it mm -hmm. kind of went wrong or if they actually want to play it for real. Yeah. And, and that's, that's kind of the alarming thing about it. Cause at some point it stops, it stops being a game and, you know, and, and at some point it takes on real import. One, one of the more impactful scenes of, of the P of which I also call out in my piece is, um, and by the way, we can. There's a few other things I want to touch on in the film, but since we're on the political side of things, one thing that really struck me that was like, man, this like. And again, as someone who's kind of has lived outside the U.S. and I, you know, I cite a few examples. I lived in Spain in the '90s, and I visited Belfast towards towards the tail end of the troubles and all that. So you know, I've seen some of the domestic, like the real domestic political violence you see somewhere else. And one of the things that struck me inside your film, for example, there's that scene sort of after the climax of the action when Trump gives a speech and some of the protesters like are literally replaying it via bullhorns off their phones. And suddenly it's as if a switch went off and, you know, kind of the gas ran out on the whole protest and they all went home because Trump said so. And so here you have this violent rabble garishly dressed up, waving little flags saying Trump, engaging in this bizarre personality cult. And it seemed to me like the most un-American thing I'd ever seen, <laughs> that this would actually be a part of the political culture now. And that's one thing that I found alarming. Yeah, it's different. It kind of feels, it kind of feels new, but like, haven't I seen this somewhere before? But no, I haven't really. Because as you say, no one pulled out a pistol and fired right. a shot when they, when they got to the, you know, the, the, the man with the horns. Instead, they're all like, oh, praise the Lord or you know, whatever, let, let us pray together. And then they didn't quite know what to do, so they just kind of wandered off. And that was the thing, that this wasn't obviously a real coup because anyone trying to stage a coup would have at least made a gesture towards some kind of serious act of political violence, whereas you know, what you saw, in fact, was fairly uncoordinated mob violence. It also felt like a group of people who were kind of taking an idea to the, to the end of its line and they end up in a place which is very strange and maybe they didn't expect. You know, people who say they support the police and a Blue Lives Matter, but they're actually attacking them and also trying to kill them. People that are trying to protect democracy through violent means by overthrowing democracy democratically. It all gets to a point where it just gets extremely confusing and the people inside the building seem to be almost registering that at a certain yeah, point. Yeah, after a while, they all start going around in circles and going like, okay, what, what, what's the game we're playing now? Yeah, I think when, when actually Ashley Babbitt, the, the woman who was shot, when that happens, it's like a light bulb moment. You see the room suddenly step back and go, oh my God, this isn't a game. It's kind of, what the hell are we doing here? Mm. Um, and there's a few moments like that and you feel a bit like, with the police, there's points where the violence really peaks and then people kind of almost get a mini re reality check for a second. And I think that, that moment when Donald Trump actually tweeted the video for everyone to go home and, and he tells the crowd that he loves them, that was definitely that kind of come down moment for a lot of people. Yeah, I mean, I, right. There, there's a couple moments 
in the film where you see that it's almost like you see the American people on the sort of ugly edge of, do I really want to go down this road? For example, I, I, I would, con I don't know if you consider, but I consider the dramatic sort of climax of the film, the scene at the tunnel, which to describe it for those who haven't seen it yet, um, there's a relatively small detachment of, I believe it was metropolitan DC cops who are stuck in this tunnel, which goes from the front open plaza to the innards of the Capitol. Um, commanded by a commander who I, I think utters this sort of very, very memorable phrase of, I didn't want to go down in history as the guy who gave up the capital, right? And there's this sort of Spartans at Thermopylae moment, which it looked like nothing more than a couple dozen police officers, a rage in this phalanx just refused to budge and just yeah. would not give up the tunnel, even though on the other side of it, you had literally thousands of protesters using everything from poles. I even saw a sledgehammer in some of the footage trying to basically just bang their way through this line of cops who absolutely would not see them. Their commander's literally behind them, egging them on and rallying them on. So there were moments of sort of heroism in the middle of it and also moments where, again, you know, the, this dumb play-up party suddenly became very real, right? Like when you had Ashley Babbitt shot and you had this woman basically die on camera. And this was at the point, and it, they seemed to be connected when the crowd was actually getting to the house chambers, which at least by the reports of the House members themselves, they felt kind of abandoned. They were just locked in there. No one, eventually someone came and saved them, but at the time, they were just stuck there with a few cops who barricaded the door, pulled out their guns, and basically said, this is it. <laughs> the protesters will get no further. We will cede no more ground. And, and the protesters finally got the message that this wasn't a game, right? And that they were staring down the barrel of a gun, and that's it. They finally hit the hard edge of something very real. Mm. Yeah, I mean that the uh, which congressman is it? Congressman who was ex Iraq, Ruben Gallega. Ruben Gallega, yeah, yeah who, who who gets very. He seems a little bit almost like post post traumatic, doesn't he? And, he, and he's like, yeah. you know, I was an infantryman in Iraq, and and you know, I wasn't gonna, you know, die at the hands of a fucking insurrectionist, insurrectionist bastard. And he gets really really emotional, doesn't he? Yeah, he's, he he admits that he you know he suffered PTSD from Iraq. But I think he says himself he found a lot of what happened on January 6th he found him a lot more difficult to deal with because that was his own people and they were doing you know he was inside the house and it seemed democracy all of a sudden seemed to flip on his head and he could understand why a jihadi or a or an enemy combatant would be shooting at him but why these guys who look like him sound like him and are the same nationality it kind of blew his mind. Yeah. It's interesting, actually, just a, a detail that we were told. And I think I've got this right: that that uh, Democrats were kind of on the upper, on the uh, on the balcony of the the House of Representatives because they were like socially distancing, and and all the, and, and kind of wearing masks and sort of playing by the rules, and and then and, and only going downstairs to the floor when when they were uh, going to speak. And the Republicans were like, you know, no, no one was wearing masks and everyone was down on the floor. And and so when the when the evacuation uh, the order to evacuate came. The Republicans all just left straight away, and <laughs> Democrats found themselves. A lot of Democrats found themselves just sitting up on the balcony, like completely forgotten about. And that's why you have this sort of uh, this sort of rump of of, of, uh, of re representatives kind of just waiting there on the balcony while the, this baying mob kind of converges on them from outside. Right, and it's. Um... It's it's interesting how, I mean, very quickly, right? I mean, it seems as if it's almost like a, a lot of this is a story of kind of failure, right? But of, you know, how can the the forces of law and order not have seen this coming? But of course, it wasn't planned. And to be clear, like the action ends when, in fact, like the whole tunnel scene kind of ends when a bunch of like hard dudes in tactical gear with what looked to be suppressed AR-15s 
just walking through the tunnel and that's it. They just clear the tunnel. <laughs> and again, it's kind of clear that the party's over and you know, that's it. Um, and so you, you did see the, um, you did see the, uh, the arm of the American sort of military and law enforcement machine kind of kick into gear relatively rapidly by the end of it. Yeah. Well, and then, um, and then sort of order is restored and, and, you know, normal business resumes like really quickly. And the election is certified that night, I think, or in the early hours of the morning. Um, and it's like, oh, yeah. And so what the hell happened? You know, and everyone's sort of left kind of scratching their heads. And, um, and then you have these divergent accounts of, you know, what happened from, I think, President Trump, who said that the crowd were like hugging and kissing the cops to, to you know, people on the other side saying this was a coup attempt. Um, and, and you, you know, I, I think there was the potential for something bad to happen if the crowd that kind of besieged the tunnel had, had en masse got into the building and i think um i think it's uh congressman swalwell said you know that if it if stuff had got out of control if fifteen thousand people had entered the building and they'd set fire to it or you know occupied it and then there could have been a pretext to declare you know that martial law because the the, the government had lost control or, to, or the uh, legislature lost control I, I don't know if that's if that sort of stacks up if people who have a better understanding than me of of procedure on capitol hill or you know the legislative possibilities uh open when, when that situation arises i mean i don't know whether that's realistic whether president the president could have you know postponed the certification indefinitely by calling you know national emergency or whatever but it there did seem to be a dangerous moment that was averted you know by the really by by those stubborn cops in the in the tunnel who who didn't let the bulk of the crowd get into the capitol building because the ones that got in through the side windows earlier in the day, they were really just, it was just like a, a few hundred, wasn't it? It was like maybe four or 500 people who got in max. Yeah, yeah I mean, it's, it seems pretty clear that Commander Kyle, I just looked up his name, uh, again, the guy in the tunnel who uh, said he didn't want to go down in history as the guy who uh, let the Capitol fall was kind of the heroes of it. Because, uh, yeah, as you said, I mean, I mean, literally the entire plaza would have streamed into the Capitol and God knows what would have happened. Yeah, and sure. as you said, it's very striking that I, I think it's, um, then Vice President Pence, who's quoted as saying, well, let's get back to business. And they go back to the, like, the sort of bureaucratic, the bureaucratic boring business of democracy of just certifying votes via mm-hmm. some legislative procedure. And it's, um, it's this interesting triumph of, um, the boredom of democracy over mob rule, I guess, if you want to take a sort of positive spin on it. <laughs> Just on the, on the front end of the day, uh, it, well, the kind of story does throw into relief as well the difference of the two um, the two police the police forces that operate in in Washington because it's very much uh, the uh, DC Metropolitan Police that that flood in and then other agencies behind them to kind of save the capital. But it's Capitol Police who are you know it's their job to to protect the capital. And as you see in you know you see on the first barricades, there's only maybe six to eight. Um, police officers there without any hard gear um, you know they were really overwhelmed quick, really quickly and, and we interviewed people who, who talk about the fact that it was zero intelligence they didn't know what was going to happen they thought it was going to be a regular day and I think that that's been like one of the legacies of the day is that police force when we've spoken to other members of law enforcement they said that they thought that maybe that that was on the cards because this is a police force that's been almost treated like concierges by the people that work around the capital rather than the respect of police of being police officers and for years that's been the case and they've been they've been weakened and weakened in in the way they've been led to the fact that they're quite a um a relaxed force or um that they're not as militant in a, in a sense or as forceful as the the dc police you really see that 
play out. Yeah, I mean, you sort of think of like the failure of imagination, the, the phrase that was used after 9-11, obviously the, the events are not comparable, but but yeah, I mean, how the hell did, you know, the, 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 the place where American democracy is conducted, how the hell did that get? Overwhelmed so quite so easily. So I think there are there are pretty huge questions to answer. I think that, maybe that, it's. Well, I was going to say that when the leadership obviously was made to resign of um, Capitol yeah. Police straight after the event. But you see, we mentioned Commander Carl there. You know, he's not a guy that goes out of his way to talk about this. We had to. It took a long, a lot of convincing. But I think if you had a few leaders like that in Capitol Police at the time, maybe things would have played out differently yeah. because there wasn't those kind of figures there. Yeah, I think you know it's. Uh, it, uh, that crowd kind of apart from a small nucleus of of you know kind of tougher guys who are out for a fight out for a bit of a rumble and you know, like the proud boys and some of the other yeah i think there's like 733 arrests so far and they're talking a crowd of 15,000 that turned yeah, up so that's yeah. a tiny amount really yeah but 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 they they did become a kind of spearhead they were the first people who broke 100%. windows and it's like it's that thing you only need like one or two guys one or two crazies yeah, it's probably eight to, ten people in that first that first push yeah if they've been if they come up against a couple of mike Fanones, the police officer who later on turns yeah. up they, they might have been yeah. a bit different yeah and it shows, you know, like the, the shows the importance of organized violence being, you know, being the monopoly of uh, how important it is for organized violence to be monopolized by the state, <laughs> and not and and for that to be done kind of in a in a in a pretty intentional and and effective way, because otherwise you get the this sort of, you know, uh, what what I think what started out as a demonstration just very faced with the weakness of the police just becomes becomes something quite quite different and also the police didn't seem to know uh, especially at the start how to respond because you've got pe- police officers with long guns there who were really not knowing should they be shooting on this crowd should they put their guns down and fight so they kind of stand aside whilst people are having fist fights and so the kind of the role of guns in the whole event seems to kind of be quite odd because that was really surprising I mean, to us as brits because I think I, I said somewhere on the record, I, I, my, my view is that if this happened in the UK, the police would have opened fire. Um, and yet we always think of America as much more sort of trigger happy, gun happy place. Um, but in this case, firearms were simply not used apart from um, the Ashley Babbitt shooting. And you can see when there's that, that crowd in the, um, in the congressional, the, 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 the lobby where Ashley Babby ends up getting shot. Ashley, Ashley Babbitt ends up getting shot. There's one guy who's like a real crazy, and he's speak, and you can see him throughout the footage, and he's he's wearing this kind of fur hat with flaps, and he's almost incoherent. He's I think there was like something wrong. You see, with him. you see him earlier in the day trying to smash the stone of the outside of the building with yeah. a with a with a big metal pole, and then inside he's riling the crowd up continuously. So yeah, he was he was unhinged, and he was definitely the antagonist on those doors. So yeah. if they got through. There, there were several people like that there. Yeah, I think yeah. that highlights the role of those people, and they sort of stir things up and stir things up and raise the temperature. And I think that's what you know. And he was smashing the windows in that lobby, and I, and that's one of the windows that Ashley Babbitt lunged yeah. to go through. And I, I think without that guy, none of that would have happened. You know, so it's 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 interesting being kind of like at just the sharp end of a or having an insight into you know on on these this incredible collage of uh, video material being able to see the dynamics of how these kind of historical situations evolve and and often it's not really intention that plays a role and it's not it's not sort of an organized you know purposeful plan often it's there's this sort of collision of, of randomness and craziness and unexpected 
violence deployed by people who are maybe unstable or a little bit unhinged and then and then it and then it, you know the crowd turns it into something different and it becomes an opening for something something un, unexpected to happen and i think you know that january 6th was always on the verge of something really really re- weird happening un, almost by accident and and what it turned into was which was this sort of as you say this carnivalesque explosion and then and then because it had nowhere to go there was no plan there was no sort of there was no blueprint for what to do once they'd got into the capitol building it all just faded away but i think you know the question is is this is it is this like sort of a warning is this what does this represent and you know i'm wondering what what, what do you think antonio as an american yeah i don't know i mean I, i'm stuck by your comment um you know the presence of firearms like i said it just it seems there's so many moments where things could have gone even worse, but they didn't. And I don't know if to chalk it up to a fundamental either American goodness or just a discomfort with that level of of, of political conflict. Because again, like so many barricades, like the police were violently assaulted, right? But even in moments when that was happening, for example, in the first scene, the first wall that gets basically battered down, you'll notice in the corner, and I watched the footage several times, there's a female officer who gets basically smushed by one of the barriers, gets brought down on her head, and instantly two of the rioters like go to like tend to her and actually pick her up, right? Like you can tell they're kind of like, oh whoa, we just like smushed this this woman officer and she's like sitting in there this crumpled like let's help her up. Or even in the uh, in the in the Fanon incident, right, which is this incident where the, the guy that the film starts with gets pulled apart from the sort of phalanx that's holding down the tunnel and he gets beaten and he, and he gets tasered by his own taser and he thinks he's going to die. But at some point, like the scrum of protesters around him kind of wake up after he says, I have kids and say, uh, where do you want to go? And they, and they just like push him back to the cops. Right. Again, in a, in a, in a situation of like real political violence, like none of those things would have happened. (laughs) Right. Like the, the cops would have just fired upon getting overwhelmed and killed a bunch of protesters or the protesters would have stomped a cop to death rather than you know coming to their senses and saying what the hell are we doing give the cop back and it's just and and like you said it's such a confused period like because even where someone actually did fire in the ashley babbitt case like the moment she hit the ground three tactical cops with ar-15 showed up behind her right it just seems odd that in some sense there was this skirmish line standoff with the protesters that required lethal action but at the same time you had like tactical officers milling around who were better armed than that capital cop who could have did, done something but didn't so there was clearly a massive lack of coordination but but i do agree with you that i think in in most cultures as supposedly trigger happy as americans are i think things would have gone <laughs> things things would have gone a lot worse than they than they did at the I, I, I agree and, and that the moment that you pinpoint of a known being both, you know, he, he gets dragged into the crowd and he gets stomped on and he gets tasered and, and, and he thinks he's going to be killed. But at the same time, the very, you know, the very same crowd or elements of the very same crowd are, are, are the people who save him. And, right. and that kind of, t- kind of weird and kind of touching as, and, and I guess hopeful as well because people, did they come to their senses or was it just that the crowd was composed of yeah, was it the same people coming to their senses, or was it there is this like a different some, faction in the crowd? But that going back to the psychology of the mob, it is amazing how people, you know, like you hear these phrases like "see red" or whatever. But the, the you, people are like edging past the larping phase into this kind of violence phase, and then they'll suddenly kind of get the smelling salt and pull out of it. But it is a kind of almost like a, a, a mass hypnosis that's like yeah. like a people almost go into a trance, and they seem to be. You've got a lot of the people who 
Um, a lot of the people involved in the violence and have been arrested have never been arrested before. They haven't got um, criminal records. You know, there's, I think there's one guy, he, he attacked a police officer particularly badly, and uh, he was a geologist, you know, and he, um, he's still in prison now. You know, these are people who haven't gone out. They're not violent people day to day. So there is, some, there is a, an effect that being in that crowd had and being whipped up in the way they did. Um, and they thought they were in the right. That really pushed them to the edge of, I think, their, their experience into a place they hadn't been before. Yeah, and I think seeing seeing violent mobs that are politically motivated, you know, not not some criminal thing, right? But like with an, an explicit political purpose, with such a grand political backdrop, again, I think is very jarring, and as it should be, jarring and shocking to Americans because it's just not something. <laughs> it's not something people here live with. I mean, in other countries, you absolutely do, and that's just like that's just the way the world works. But here, it isn't, and so to me, that's the. I guess that's the thing I think about. To what degree will this be like a cold bucket of water thrown over the American polity's head of like, get your shit together? Or will, I don't know, or will it actually lessen the sensibilities to that sort of thing and make it such that, you know, the next instance of it is is even worth, worse? I mean, one thing I noticed, for example, like it, it, it's, it's almost like elided a little bit in, in the film, but like, when I think it was either in the Senate or the House, when they realize that a mob is coming, one of the Democratic members actually yells out, this is your fault, to the Republican side of the floor, which is, to me, interesting that like the partisanship would actually survive, even when they're all kind of in the same, literally in the same boat, in the same, in the same shit stuck together, they're still sitting there kind of mutually recriminating each other um, for the situation, which, I don't know. <laughs> that was not an encouraging yeah. side. Yeah. It wasn't. I mean, you know, our, our, what, what we tried to do was to take uh, a, a quite a narrow time window and, and, and do a very simple job, which was to to tell a linear chronological story with the with the people who were there, or some of the people who were there, and because of because of the you know the polarization of opinion around this event, and because you know there was some dispute as to what actually happened, we thought this was. This was the simplest and, and kind of most honest thing that we could that we could do to try and shed some light on what happened. And I think the film's kind of successful. I hope you, you, you agree in that way, in that it doesn't tell you how to think. It doesn't tell you how to interpret anything. It just takes you into a story and and you know, blow by blow, uh, character by character kind of tries to to push you through that timeline and give you some of the sort of personal insights of the participants as, as, as we go along in, in a, it is sort of neutral and sort of Britishly detached way as possible. <laughs> well, so that was my other question. How did you either find or choose the participants? Because, you know, you had one, I guess the, the filmmaker guy of the proud boys. I mean, you had some key characters in the story, but you know, also, some of them seem pretty random in the sense that, well, they could have been one of many. So how, how did you go about, and, and were they willing to talk about it? Could they even talk about it? I, I'm guessing some of them are probably still involved in like legal processes around their participation. What, what was it like trying to get sources for the film? Yeah, so that, I mean, that, there's the, the, the video element of the, you know, the, the material that we used, but really the, the, the core um, of the film is that testimony that really tells the story so casting was really important for us to make sure that we had people at really key moments who are right there 
um, who were either participating or right next to the person that was doing the action. Um, so we we spent, you know, we went all we went across the states and back again, kind of thing, meeting people, filming people. Um, we, I suppose, the the people, the rioters themselves. You know, we we filmed with a lot more than we actually included in the film. Um, and the main reason for that was that we we really need to be sure that these people were telling us the truth, not just telling us what their lawyer wanted us to hear or, or the reversioning of what they wanted to say for a different audience. But they're actually giving us what you know, why they were there, the motivations, what they were seeing, what actually happened. So so we um, we discarded it quite a lot um, of people doing that. But I mean, really, I think maybe being British did help because. We could come at it from that we're not voting Democrat or Republican. We're not interested in that. We're interested in what happened on January the 6th on the ground at that event. And, you know, the first thing a lot of people say is, oh, but there were riots all, all last year. There's Antifa and there's this group and they're great. And we're like, look, we're just doing a film about these, this day, these hours. And we kept going back to that. And I think that people on all sides of the spectrum did actually connect with that. And I think they felt that we were being genuine because we really did want to put the jigsaw together rather than have you know, a partisan kind of uh, approach to things where we might have a presenter who's kind of telling you this person's bad and this person's good. You know, really, we really wanted to get into the head of the people on all sides. Yeah, because the, the other versions of the, the day were, were the Washington Post and New York Times, which both had like a lot of narration over them and sort of, I guess, also, seems, seems to operate on a built-in theory, set of theories, theories of what have, might have happened, yeah. which we didn't want to cast aspersions. We wanted to work with hard, we wanted really to work with facts because this is a really, um, this territory that people are arguing over all the time and we really wanted to have the material that we used to be supported by the testimony so you really could see that this this is how it happened. This yeah. is how it went down rather than, oh, this this guy might have been in touch with this guy and there is this movement here and there and that's all well and good, but our mission was just to be kind of belt and braces. This is what happened, and these are the people, and you can go and meet them if you want. Yeah, and and you know, I I, I think um, it, the other thing that's worth mentioning, uh, Jamie, is that is that it was very hard to get interviews with the police, and 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 it wasn't as if law enforcement came along and was like, yeah, here, guys, you know, you you need to hear our story. It took us a great deal of time and, and effort to convince. DC police and Capitol police to to participate. The whole thing was very raw. It took a lot of effort to to persuade the the, the rioters to participate because you know a lot of them were worried about being arrested or or their lawyers advised them not to participate. So that so you know just getting getting the people in front of the camera was was a real struggle. And Jamie travelled far and wide. You went you know California and you went to length and breadth of America to, to gather the, this cast together. We spent a lot of time in bars with cops. <laughs> <laughs> that we know like probably, so we, we're good at that. <laughs> <laughs> well, it sounds like that could be a whole other uh, film. Yeah, no, it's interesting that you got uh, the commander to participate and some of the police to participate. I imagine that those were probably very difficult uh, interviews to wangle. Um, I mean, I, I assume you had to go through their, their departments and stuff and they had to be authorized to speak to, to journalists, I imagine. Yes, uh, except for Mike Fanone. He, he, I don't think he had authorization. We, we met him very early on. He'd kind of broken cover and was, I think he was very upset about what had happened and, and felt like the message needed to be out there. But he was also very, he didn't want to be the only guy talking about this. He wanted the police en masse to talk about it. But I think, you know, it's, it's kind of largely, that if he hadn't broken cover, as you said, and he hadn't come out and like stubbornly sort of insisted on, telling his story and saying, you know, how underappreciated and uh, the police 
were and how how much violence they'd suffered. I, I don't think I don't think that theme would be out there, and I, I don't think we could have done this film. No, no, that that was one of the the key moments early on for us was a FaceTime when he was sitting in his car and we were talking to him, and this was before Mike Fanone had been on Time magazine or been in the newspapers. This was really early. Someone had just said, "You've got to speak to this guy," and then we called him, and and that was Mike Fanone. Yeah, he was just like completely fearless, and he's got this like huge spiderweb tattoo on the side of his neck, and you know, it's like, whoa, this is a cop. <laughs> Um, so yeah, I think, yeah. I think part, part of it is he's quite he's a unique personality and, and part of that as well is he you know he's an undercover cop and he's been, has been for a long time and he him and his partner Jimmy Albright you know they they were spending their days going to bars doing drug buys breaking into buildings on their own they're very kind of slightly deinstitutionalized and I think maybe that went into his thinking because it is difficult to get into an, uh, a large organization like the police and kind of try and get trust there's a lot of uh, fear of the media there. He's like the loose cannon cop in every like 80s American police procedural that like gets into a fight with the chief and gets his badge and gun taken away, but goes after the criminal anyhow. He kind of yeah. gives me that vibe from the yeah. from the yeah. yeah yeah yeah. I, mean, yeah. I think his boss is always pissed off with him. But he goes to his. I went to his house. <laughs> he's got more medals than I've ever seen. He's, they're everywhere. So I think he is that exactly that guy. Yeah, and he's a true. I mean, he's a true cop. He really believes in the mission, and he's really care. You know, and you can see for the way he fought that day. He's been, he's been shot. He yeah. shot people. He's done the whole yeah. lot, you know. Yeah, and so and, and so that was, for us was sort of quite quite telling in, in that like it, so if this is you know if this is um if this was sort of an, an uprising against the forces of chaos you know that we sort of saw unleashed in the summer and 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 if this was you, you know a, a riot the purpose of which was to defend a broken democracy then you know how come this 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 maverick cop who really seems to have his own mind and isn't afraid of speaking it. How come he's, you know, he's so adamant that what happened was to- that day was totally wrong and this was this was not, you know, this was not any kind of, you know, he 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 Fanon really didn't think doesn't have any time for the rioters at all. And and so we thought, well, this you know this guy kind of, in a way, represents the conscience of law and order and 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 the conscience of the blue. And and if 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 he thought this was an outrage what happened that day in, in uh, Capitol Hill, then, yeah, that, 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 that should really give us pause for thought about how we characterize the event. Right. No, I mean, I'm guessing, uh, I, yeah, I wonder, I, you sort of had that a little bit. Uh, you interviewed one of the, I think it was a, a congressperson from Georgia who I think was pretty clearly GOP, who, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, who, we called him Boss Hog. Because remember from the uh, Dukes of Hazzard. the Dukes of Hazard, Boss Hog, <laughs> the guy, the, like the white, he's the sort of the the head honcho of the village or something, and the white he wears this white suit. And I don't know, it's a long time ago, right? Probably none of your none of your listeners remember that series. But, uh, uh, it was a little bit before my time, but I I, I recognize the classic for what it is. Um, right. If he had a if he had a basset hound, that would have been ideal, probably for the uh, the iconography of the Southern Party boss. But uh, you know he he clearly is kind of pissed off at the rioters and you can tell that I, I, I don't know his personal political history, but I'm guessing he's as hitched to the Trump train as anybody. And to see yeah. it result in oh, that, yeah, can, I, I'm guessing. Was quite, a, you can't quite see in the background of the, um, of the interview, but there's a picture of him with Trump kind of uh, shaking hands and on his desk, he actually had a buzzer that said fake news on it that you could slam. <laughs> <if> you, uh, 
<laughs> yeah, he was. He was. I thought he was a great interview and actually very brave doing it because we really wanted that that perspective. It was really important. That 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 was another thing, Antonio, is that uh, you know we really wanted more Republicans in the film. You know, it was relatively. I won't say easy, but it was relatively straightforward to get a few Democrats to say what they thought about it. But there was only a handful. I mean, if you we, if you, we, if you we, exclude um, Kinsinger, who's a, who's a sort of dissident. Um, there's only a handful of Republicans who, act, who even responded to our request. And we emailed every single Republican representative and senator. And, and only a tiny handful came forward to be interviewed. And I, you know, we thought that was a shame. Huh. Interesting. So, huh. I guess because they just saw you as part of the lying media and they just weren't going to participate and they didn't care. Right. And I, I actually I, I think... Um, they actually just didn't want to talk about it because it, it, they didn't know what to say because the, the Trump holds this huge sway over the party and there hasn't really been a kind of, you know, there hasn't been a, a, a proper inquiry, there hasn't been a kind of closure of it. So I think people were kind of were thinking, it seemed to us anyway, that, well, Trump could be running in the next election. We need to, do we need to be close to this guy? Do we need to, um, do we need to denounce this? Or where, where do we go with this? And, and I think a lot of people behind the scenes, you know, they were expressing that to us and also talking amongst themselves. They were kind of thinking, what, what does this mean for my political future if I stick my neck out and I, think, I say what I really think here? Uh, right, right. I mean, the big question mark that hangs over all of this is like, is Trump running again in 2024? And are we going to have season two of the whole show again? Um, interesting. So what has been the reaction to the, I mean, I, the film has been out, I, it seems like for a decent amount of time now, what, what has been the reaction both in the US and abroad? What, is there anything surprising to the reaction? What, what's it been like? I, I think it's been overwhelmingly positive. I mean, the press at the time, so the film came out in October. Um, Mid-October, the, 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 what we call the broadsheet press, like the, the sort of you know, New York Times, etc., the, the, the kind of uh, Wall Street Journal, all that, just gave it amazing write-ups. We got sniped at, as I said earlier, by the trade press, the Hollywood Reporter, etc., for, for you know, giving the oxygen of publicity to, to deplorables. Uh, and I thought you know, that, that, that was a bit of a shame. Um, they, they really missed the point entirely of what a documentary is supposed to do. Um, and, you know, I mean, if you look at Twitter today, there's there's a tweet about it every few seconds. Uh, it's still up there and people are still watching it. I think HBO put it back on on their terrestrial. Uh, you know, it's, it's always there on demand, of course, but they, they, they're showing it again. Um, I think when we started it, there were people were saying, why are you doing that? Everyone knew what. Happened. Exactly. Exactly. And now, and now people are going, go watch this. Remind yourself of what happened. <laughs> you is, won't believe it. Is it Katie Couric said this should be required viewing for, for like every American? I think she tweeted that today. Um, so, so yeah, Jamie's right. We we forget this. I, 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 you know, I have a long-standing relationship with HBO, and we've done a lot of work with them. And 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 I think they made a fantastic decision to give us the go-ahead. But at the time, it wasn't at all obvious that you know the world needed a January sixth film because because as you just said, Jamie, like the newspapers were full of it. That you know the, the internet was full of it, and it's like. Yeah, we know what happened. Why the hell do we need a documentary to tell us what happened in, you know, in eight months' time? But as it turned out, no one else made a documentary about this. No one else put together all that footage. And we ended up with the definitive account of those four hours. And I think that's a valuable document. It's something, you know, it's incontrovertible. It's not, it's not partisan. This is, this is an honest account of what happened 
on a really quite significant day for, 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 for Americans and for the world because everyone's watching and thinking what the hell's going on. Um, so, I mean, response abroad, response, um, I, I think people are just sort of goggle-eyed. I mean, Certainly it's, it's been shown over the world now, across has, the world. Yeah, I mean, people everywhere are, except China and Oh, right. <laughs> South Korea. But yeah, they've got like, you know, I think New Zealand showed it last night. Yeah. I was seeing people, someone texted me. and but When it did happen, obviously, there's in certain places, and not least here, you know, we, we look to American politics for which way the weather's blowing here and also maybe kind of political strategy. So January the 6th was people in Europe were, were watching it kind of wide-eyed and wondering what this meant for us. So I think that people are still very, very interested in it because it still speaks to the political time we're in. Yeah, I, mean, it's, I think it symbolizes something quite, quite chilling if you think about it too much. You know, it's, it's, it's kind of, it feels like something's kind of slightly disintegrating. Something's, something's not quite right. You know, some, even, even if you don't think January 6th was a particularly sort of menacing, you know, if you think it was just like, like a, a, a bit of a protest gone wrong and a lot of this, you know, a lot of these people were clowns and they didn't have any serious intentions of making any trouble but but it, it it's kind of just a weird spectacle and it, it does send chills i think because it does it kind of is a token of some something going awry something out of kilter you know and we don't quite know what it means we don't know how out of kilter we don't know whether uh, you know is order going to be is the democratic you know the, whatever it is we've come we've become used to as the sort of the way things always happen and the you know the way politics always happen is that somehow changed or was this just a blip you know i think that's that's what uh, the, fact, the fact that you can have an event that was the most probably the most filmed event in history and have uh, pretty much two narratives obviously yeah, very different but like striking. that are so different and the fact that it's there you have the same group of people talking about it who are there and the, and the, and the video footage to back it up yet people can look at it and see something that's so so, so um, polarized is is still quite incredible, and that yeah. that is concerning because we we have we're wrestling with that here in much smaller ways, and I think that that the way that plays out, the way democracy yeah is kind of going. And of course, once we saw Tucker Carlson's special about January six, we realised we got the whole thing wrong. Yeah, right? Mike, Mike Fanon is an actor, and <laughs> Ashley Babbitt didn't really die, and, and it was all an FBI know, like sting operation. So this this <laughs> this is this Boy, is kind of where we are in the world. We're feeling really sore, Antonio. Yeah, we got we got so much to like just we. Just just got the run in the stick. <laughs> um, yeah. Have you seen, do you know what we're talking about? Have you seen Tucker Carlson's January 6th epic? Um, I am not, I'll, I'll confess to not being a regular Tucker Carlson watcher. No, I have not watched it. It's outstanding. It's, it's like, it's, it's, it's incredible. If you've watched ours and then you watched, you, you watch his, his account of what really happened. It's, it's quite, I mean, it's sort of, yeah, it's an exemplar of, uh, <laughs> the kind of the, the way yeah the way events have been misrepresented yeah no I imagine the reaction from abroad like you said must be just a, a gog at what is the American political circus <laughs> right because yeah, but not, um, I mean not not, yeah. not always in a sort of mocking I mean certainly not in a sort of superior way this is this is like fuck you know if, if, we, if we just went through Brexit which yeah. didn't happen in the same way but we have people on both sides lying who are extremely, you know, extremely senior politicians making up facts, or you know, their campaigns are full of these kind of strip, you know, there's just echoes through throughout. I think politics in in Britain and in other countries. Now we have like anti-vaxxers invade, like wrecking testing centres, and, and yeah. you know, the, the, there seems to be a vogue now for like these kind of 
um, sort of spontaneous, you know, crazy protest that that where people just get people just want to get together and fucking, you know, smash things. And that that's an uncomfortable feeling. It's kind of spaces on social media for this to incubate and then it explodes into reality. And yeah. it's kind of quite often seems to be lobbied or encouraged by other forces. Yeah. So yeah, people were interested. Yeah, that's that's a that's a powerful force in, in, in the streets and, and if someone someone wants to take advantage of that maybe maybe they can, maybe they can't. I don't know. Maybe next time anyone tries anything funny at the Capitol, the National Guard will be there and we'll just, you know, scare everyone off. But, you know, who knows? It only takes a you know, it only takes a gap in the vigilance of I'm going to sound like some kind of uh, statist, uh, some Gaullist now, but um, it, you know, it takes a, a sort of momentary lapse in the vigilance or the coherence of of the of the forces of law and order which protect our democratic institutions. It only takes a a bit of softness in there, a bit of uh, you know, a bit of carelessness to 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 allow this kind of thing to happen. And I think that's you know, I don't know whether that's a, does that mean we should you know have a lot more cops and a lot more security. Yeah, I don't think that's the answer. But, um, yeah, I don't think anyone knows what, what, what even the question is. So I wouldn't attempt an answer. But yeah, I mean, there that's... Is sorry, warning, there, is a, there is a warning and a lesson in it. So yeah, yeah. It feels, like, it feels like, oh, shit, something has shifted, but we're not quite sure what and we're not quite sure which way. Yeah, and, this, and the, the example was that kind of ground zero of democracy, the symbol, the symbol of democracy for the world, you know, yeah. so the fact that happened live, on live TV, yeah. it's still quite unbelievable. Yeah, anyway, we hope um, that's been <laughs> yeah, no, it, it has been. I mean, just as a final comment, I mean, one of the sad things about it is like those Proud Boys people, like they're clearly just a bunch of like, you know, guys like who need some form of organization or brotherhood and a cause to dedicate themselves to. And for yeah. whatever reason, and not just them, I mean, a lot of the groups that were assembled there, like Cowboys for Trump or whatever, who clearly just needed some overarching structure for, you know, whatever their civic mindedness, however warped or weird it was to just direct it in some direction that wasn't, you know, screaming on a bullhorn with, you know, horns on your head in the middle yeah. of the Capitol. And somehow society isn't, providing that and that's kind of a dangerous thing and here i am falling into the sin that i was kind of condemning people for but if you look at if you look at mid-century european history right and the history of like the freikorps in germany it's it's precisely such like large groups of shiftless directionless men (laughs) trying to find bonding and direction in some form or another that are like the source of all trouble in the universe Um, put a a uniform on them and you give them a song to sing and 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 a place to march to and boy, that's a dangerous weapon. That's right. That's right. Um, cool. Well, we're we're at the limit. You guys are are way way into the pub hour in the UK. So um, um, definitely a real pleasure. Thank you for having us on, man. Yeah, thank you, yeah. Antonio. It's been brilliant. No, thanks. Um, thanks for coming on. I'll edit this and send out a link shortly so it can be shared. And again, thanks for coming on. And thanks for putting together a great documentary. Like you said, I I couldn't even find another documentary that actually tries to thread together events and do it justice. So you've really done a, a service for history here, actually. That's because you haven't watched Tucker. Because I, I haven't watched Tucker yet. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Like, um, like, no, he's not a real man. <laughs> Right. Um, right. I don't even. I don't even know how to watch Fox News. I'd have to figure that out first. But um, you get five paywalls, and you need a proud boy to help you. Okay. <laughs> okay. Um, all right then. Well, thanks, Jamie, and thanks, Dan, and uh, thanks to the pull request listeners. And um, like I said, I for those who are subscribers, I posted a piece just 
five minutes before this interview, please go check it out. And if you want to watch the film, uh, Jamie and Dana provided very, uh, very kindly provided a free link that I've put at the bottom of the post. So you can go watch the documentary. Thanks again, Jamie and Dan. Thank you guys. All right. Thank see you. you. Bye. Yeah, bye. Bye.